0: We say is down 10%. A lot of people have got negative balances again because markets have been very turbulent. Know, 10 years, basically, of good returns. People that started at the start, because the balances were small, contributions were masking the, the market returns that they were seeing. So they weren't probably aware that in that period from 2007 through the GFC that the markets were actually losing money because they didn't see it in their balance. What would you say that you do? I do two things. I'm a chartered accountant. And also a financial advisor, so you combine both and find that they work. They're very complementary um, to each other, but uh, in New Zealand, it's it's quite unusual to find people that do both. That is
1: really there
0: are chartered accountants who are financial advisors, but not there's not that many that do both both facets within a business. Yeah,
1: mm. well, it got quite frustrating as a financial advisor back in the day to not know the answers to the clients and not being able to tell them the answers and having to find out some, you know, call an yeah. accountant and ask. So.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be, but you've also got to be very careful not to to, to combine the two because they operate under separate businesses as well. So,
1: hmm.
0: And you've got separate regulations, separate regulators, so it does make it a little bit confusing, but.
1: Yeah, how do you do that? Like, do you have to take one? Do you change outfits and come back? I'm like, oh, sorry, I'm going to be an accountant now. We got to no, split this room. No,
0: it's a little bit like that. You, you, I tend to separate the meetings. So, it, you'll have an accounting meeting, and then you'll get people to come back and do the financial advice meeting. It's the normal way I do it. So, there's hmm. two very distinct purposes to the to the discussion.
1: Do you charge separately on those two instances?
0: Um, accounting is is charged like we normally charge for accounting. Um, financial advice is charged on the basis because, I mean, as you're you're aware, you know, financial advice isn't as easy to charge on time and cost. People don't tend to pay for that. So, um, (laughs) you know, I think unfortunately in New Zealand there's a, a, yeah, I'm not sure that financial advice isn't always valued as much as perhaps it could be.
1: Yeah. Well, what what do you think that might stem from? Or do you think it's different in different parts of the world or is it just universal we don't?
0: I think it's different in I mean certainly in the UK people will pay for financial advice. I think believe in America they do too. Um, as I think it's just the way the industry's grown here. Um, that the commissions and the the, um, the 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 remuneration structures that have existed in the past have probably meant that you 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 rely more on putting the work in up front and then um, you get you get paid afterwards and yeah, but that, that's going to change, and we've seen that in Australia already, where they, well, after the Royal Commission, they they got rid of a lot of the upfronts and the, the um, you know, the trial commissions and the servicing commissions and 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 the things that people weren't aware were getting paid.
1: It's going to be interesting. Yeah, uh, you make a point. It's almost as though people have conditioned to expect it to be free because the commission mm. was paid by the provider. Yeah. As opposed to by the client.
0: Well, the other thing was a lot of the big providers historically have always provided financial advice for free because they they saw it as a way of getting building their their books and KiwiSaver. You know, the banks used to have huge advice teams that were based off the back of building their KiwiSaver books.
1: <laughs> I see a lot of them exiting it now. Like it's... they
0: have most of the banks have exited advisor advisory now. So yeah,
1: yeah. It's, it's quite it, there's quite a lot of risk or challenge in it. What what a, what has been your perception of the the compliance changes, and you know, like it makes sense in practice and the delivery of it, it adds some complexity. And-
0: it, does, it does add complexity, but I think it, it adds it adds some value for the consumer. I think it's I think it's meant that people can be more reliable. They know they're getting advice that's probably well thought out. Um, and I think you know the regulator does a good job, and I think you know we need to. This is going to be a journey. I mean, we we were very late to the party of being a regulated industry in New Zealand. Um, you know, Australia have had some pretty substantial regulations for years, and you know, the UK you could almost argue are overregulated. Um, you know, America's regulated as well, and it means that you know there are rules and things you have to follow and it's just a matter of knowing what to do um you know i've always tried to follow the rules um you know
1: even as a kid, young man
0: that's a that will be that (laughs) that might be a discussion for later but i mean as an advisor you know there's a process you have to follow and i think it's really important that that process you know it's probably for me now it's just ingrained in what i do so
1: where do you think it sort of goes in the future like you know, I've seen some insurance people, for example, they charge $500 a year to say that they're not impacted by commissions. There's other people that, you know, charge for a plan or they charge for like a ongoing fee, but then people worry about, you know, does that impact returns? And it seems to be a race at the bottom in terms of costs. Where do you, where do you think things are going?
0: I think it's going to be really difficult because um, with the banks exiting the advice business, it's becoming... Harder for people who have KiwiSaver balances, particularly, to get go and find someone to talk to, um, because you know providers pay, you know they'll pay a trail on on KiwiSaver, but that trail, in most cases, doesn't even go close to to covering the the servicing costs for, for over a year. Um, but there's a lot of media that talk about you know. Um, financial advisors overcharging and, and hidden commissions and things like that. So I, I do I, – I am sort of probably hopeful that one day there'll be a lot more transparency mm. around the fees. I, I I have a policy in, in my business. I fully disclose all fees so clients are well aware of, of what, what's getting paid. Um, so, yeah, but I, I think unfortunately KiwiSaver – they need to. I think the. I think there needs to probably be a bit of a rethink around how how KiwiSaver advice is paid for, because you know there are a lot of people out there who are doing, um, you know, who are providing the advice, but there I don't know that people are able to access it because they just can't either afford it or they can't, um, you know, don't know how to actually access someone to do it. I mean, I heard yesterday talking to to an account um, one of my accounting clients who um, was telling me that they got phoned up they've just turned 56 and they got phoned up by their bank and got suggested that they went into down risk their risk profile from growth down into a balanced or a moderate profile because they're now 10 years from retirement. And that was the. And then they said to them on the phone, "Well, you know, should just let's just get the paper. Let's just do it. You, I can t- talk you through the process." And they hadn't gone through the, the 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 you know understanding their goals. They hadn't understood whether the person was actually going to retire at sixty five. They hadn't understood, um, you know, and and you know, you look at the markets currently. Is it really a good time to be <laughs> no. to be moving someone wholesale from a growth to a, a less risky portfolio? So. Mm-hmm. And and, that, and you know, so that sort of thing, unfortunately, is is going to manifest itself. And so people need to know where to go. and And I think the educational process for particularly KiwiSaver, is really important. And There's some really good people out there that are doing a fantastic job with with education now.
1: Yeah, and, and just on that, for people listening, it's like think about if you had a house and it was worth a million, and suddenly it went down to say eight hundred thousand in hmm. value, and then you rushed out to sell it, and then that was going to be your way to fund your retirement. And it was a house that probably isn't going to grow in much value over the next, you know, 10 years. So it's like that one, they're crystallizing a loss. So they're selling assets that have decreased in price. One, they're missing out on the potential upside of, you know, growing their, their portfolio and they might retire at 70 instead of 65 or even 57. You don't know, cause you never hmm. asked.
0: We well, don't know what's, what's ahead of you.
1: So that's crazy. Hmm. It's tricky. I was talking. Oh, you go. That's right. I was. I was talking to a guy that's trying to innovate in that space, and because on one hand, KiwiSaver is a set and a forget until key moments, and it's also a check in if the fund provider is doing something it shouldn't. As long as the fund provider is following fundamentals in investment, and most of them do, some don't. But I won't name them. I got in trouble for that. <laughs> there's some. There's some strange investments and they're just for anyone that wants to know not so much the name of it but it's just a single asset class with only 30 equities <coughs> so it's just 30 companies hmm. and there's you know <coughs> but anyways his his approach was um client directed kiwi inquiries that help facilitate a relationship to an advisor i don't know if people would be engaged in that platform but his whole idea was that You have the single source of net worth where they're all tracking and following their life and where they're at, and then they want a particular advice and then they facilitate the relationship with the advisor and the platform pays the advisor for their time instead of the actual person. Hmm. But how do you think we solve that problem of KiwiSaver paying almost nothing to advisors but needing I think,
0: advice? I think if Kiwi, as KiwiSaver becomes more meaningful to people, and I, my, my judgment on KiwiSaver is that um, it becomes meaningful when your balance is roughly one year's salary um, and then people then will get on the journey and start to realise, my money is, I've now got a meaningful amount. And then when it gets to two or three times your salary, which for people who have been in KiwiSaver right from the start, you know people are probably starting to get to that point now. Um, and, yeah, it's just about, I suppose, people understanding that there are advisors out there who can help them and people um, being prepared to say, well, actually, you know, my KiwiSaver balance is worth this much today. Maybe some guidance... Um, to get me to the end point might be a good investment or good good use of time. Um, I mean, I always used to describe it to people that, you know, if I took you out into the street out here and I said to you, find your way to Whangarei, you could probably do it. If I put a, if you had a blindfold on, you could probably f- find your way. You'd ask people and they'll, they'll say, I'll oh, go that way, I'll go that way. But if I gave you a map and, and some checkpoints along the way, you're going to get there a lot better and you're probably end up in a better position.
1: Mm, that's hmm. a good analogy. And that's right? how
0: I that's how I describe it to people. So it's about giving you you the checkpoints along the way. If you want them, um, some people don't want them. And you know, and you know, give the guidance that, that, that you think because, you know, markets have been very, very um, temperamental in the last three, four years. And, you know, there are some you know, I'm I, I'm a believer that you know you just ride this ride these sort of things out, you know, because they they do come right. Markets have always always do come right, but it's just the time frame where they do come right. And you know, another analogy I use to to people is the biggest determinant of the return you're going to get is how you react when things go wrong, hmm. because you know, typically people will, will withdraw or down risk. And those two things typically mean you've locked in losses and you don't have the opportunity to regain the gains.
1: Mm. It's, it's such a huge thing. I use the analogy of like a boat. It's like, have got this well-made boat. It'll get you where it's going to go. You're going to go through some rough seas. As long mm. as you don't jump off, you're fine.
0: Mm. Exactly. Um,
1: yeah. It's tricky. My concern was with Server so was like, so it started around about 2007, give or take. And there was you know some tough times then, but for the most people coming after that hadn't really experienced much
0: no. well they had ten years basically of good returns, yeah, and then you know of course the the other thing that that impacted that was that the people that started at the start because the balances were small, the contributions they were getting from the government them their own contributions plus their employer contributions were masking the the market returns that they were seeing so, so they weren't probably aware that in that period from 2007 through the GFC and then you know that the, the turbulence in the early part of the 2010s, they probably weren't aware that the markets were actually losing money because they didn't see it in their balance. Whereas when COVID hit, you, you, because the balances was so much bigger, straight away people saw the fact oh God, my, my was down ten percent. Mm. Um, and this year, you know, a lot of people have got negative balances again because markets have, have been very turbulent. The dollar hasn't probably been as reliable, and, you know, that's we, we've had a perfect storm the other way.
1: Which mm. scary, and I think that's the value. You see it in the advisors that have lasted the longest. Mm. They're really good at setting expectation. So you see the advisors that don't last. They're like, oh, I'll get you this return. This is We got better returns than that. And then as soon as moments like this happen – if you haven't warned clients and said, hey, you know, this could go down if you've got an increase portfolio of 30, 40%. You know, if, if you've got a balance, it could be 10, 20%. Are you immensely prepared for that? And it could take years to recover. Mm-hmm. But if you don't leave, <laughs> you're fine. It's, it's tricky. Mm-hmm. So, what do you do in those moments? You got that call. They're like, oh, you you financial advisor, you told me to get in it. It's gone down 20%. They're not usually like that, but like some are.
0: <laughs> Just listen. Yeah. That's all you can do.
1: Interesting.
0: Hmm.
1: Is there a way you help prepare them for it, like in the initial I, I do. consultation? I mean,
0: yeah, I mean, my, in most of my advice documents, I'm very overt about negative returns and what can happen. Um, I talk about, you know, I, I I show them what a three-year return will be, what the worst period has been over three years, and um, so, so they are aware, you know, and it's, yeah. we And part, as part of risk profiling, I also make sure people are aware of, you know, the potential for negative return.
1: There's, there's a good way to demonstrate. It's not timing the market, it's time in the market is a common thing. Yeah, and there, there's a S&P 500, which you probably know, but most people listening might not. The 500 biggest companies, let's say, in the US. Mm. And they found over a 20-year period, if you just missed 10 days, so for 10 days you weren't in the market during the best trading days, so where the markets went really high, you you lost about a third of the potential return. So you think about that. Just you miss ten days in twenty years, and you're like your return is let's say it was like eight percent, and it was five percent for example, something like that. Yeah. It's crazy, eh? But then people try and yeah, I know how to pick. I'm a trader.
0: Well, the other thing you know is, is really interesting is if you look at the S and P 500. If you haven't he- held the top seven tech stocks. You, you're pretty much flat over a, you know four or five years, because those tech stocks have actually driven the markets, um, you what, know, what's, market your,
1: what's your view on things at the moment? Where are we in a recession? In New so, Zealand? Yeah, I think so. Interesting. I don't. I, I don't
0: know that the, the 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 stats will show there's a recession, but um, I think you know the what I'm seeing from our accounting clients, what I'm seeing talking to people, you know. It's tough out there at the moment. You know, I, I don't believe that New Zealand has really understood the impact of the RBNZ's decisions and the impact it's going to have on on residential mortgages and people's spending ability. I don't think people have actually fully adjusted to that yet. I think, you know, there's a, there's a whole cohort of people that bought houses, you know, and, and I, I do feel very sorry for, you know, particularly a lot of the first home buyers who bought houses three, four years ago. Who financed their houses through the bank of mum and dad? Um, you know they they probably locked in a mortgage rate of two point five, say, interest only for three or four years. And those interest those mortgages are coming up now. They you know they were probably earning you know if they were lucky maybe earning a hundred grand a year, which was comfortably servicing their mortgage, and they were living a good life. And now their mortgage has come up. They probably still got a million dollar mortgage and. Um, they, they've they got, you know, suddenly they're having to find 7.2% and they've moved from interest only to P&I. And, you know, so suddenly their mortgage cost has gone from say 25000 a year to, you know, seventy 000, eighty thousand 80000 a year and their salary won't have gone up by that much and the chances are there are negative equity in their property. And, you know, the money from the bank of mum and dad has probably gone and it's going to be very tough, and and those are the people I I've got a great deal of sympathy for. So yeah. I think you know it's 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 going to be hard, and, and then, of course that's going to manifest itself because suddenly you know the consumer spending isn't down. I mean it was amazing mm-hmm. yesterday to see Mitre Ten come out and say they they lost I think sixty eight million dollars. You've seen the failure of Soupy. Um, you know it's it's and I and I, I I've just got a horrible feeling. I think this is just the start.
1: Hmm. Mm. Well, it makes sense. I mean, I, I was helping some clients a while back where they were like two great incomes, uh, and they're in their early twenties. Debt free at sixty five. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like, and I was working off a seven percent just to be safe. I assume mortgage rates are seven percent on average, just hmm. like the bank does. But I was like, I was still. You know, and I'm like, hey, this is really important debt. You got to pay this down as soon as. And they're like, well, I can do this. And I'm like, oh my God, this, because it's like, it's like a $2 million. It was, mm. and then you're right. Yeah. So people fixed a few years back and now all it's coming off. And then also there's a lot of redundancies I'm seeing. A lot of people getting yeah. fired because businesses aren't making money.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we're, I think we're in for a very tough time in the next hmm. 12, 18 months. And, you know, I think the incoming government are going to have a very tough job to, to manage that. So.
1: Yeah, we brought government in this account. Yeah, <laughs> Let's do a slide step. No, yeah, no, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> no, this, I've never had any content not piss someone off when I talked
0: about government. Yeah. No, but I, I, yeah, I just think it's going to be. I think the environment, you know, and, and people just need to probably tighten their purse strings where they can, tighten their belts, and you know just ride the wave out because you know this isn't an unusual event. It happens all through history, right? Mm. I mean, i i I can remember when I bought my first house, I was paying. 16%, 17% on my mortgage. Um, I saw someone um, <laughs> who's maybe, oh, i say he's five years older than me, and he he sent me a photo of his first mortgage document this morning, and he was paying 24.5%. Mm. You know? And I, I looked at his repayments, and they weren't, um, you know, I looked and I thought, you know, that, that's a frightening amount of money because this was in the 80s, right? And he would have been a young guy starting out who just bought his first house. I think he was paying $700 a month in mortgage payments. Yeah, so it doesn't sound a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah. But
0: when you put that into context of what he would have had He's to front earning. for his house yeah. and what he was probably earning at that point in time, it's probably not out of the reality of today's world either. So,
1: Yeah, that mm. is nuts. Mm. Like to put it in perspective, I don't know how to work it out in my head, but the rule of 72 is how long it would take for, let's say that, that mortgage to double if you didn't pay it, yeah. So I was like, what three between three and four, let's say, hmm. years before it would double, yeah. <laughs> that like I don't know how to conceptualize the $700 yeah. a month, but like when you think about it like that, that's crazy,
0: hmm. it's big money, and you know, but yeah, I think it's just I, I just don't think we've actually appreciated as a country how much the impact the mortgage shock is going to have, and it does worry me.
1: What is what is your thoughts on property? Because that's often where we have to steer people away from as property in the bank. I don't.
0: I don't talk about property. I just think mm. that's a decision people need to make. I. I don't. I'm not a big follower of the property market. So, um. Yeah. I don't. I. I do think New Zealanders are over exposed to property in general. I think it's um. It's been a historical thing because you've had has had such a great. You know, it didn't have capital gains of any form. It hasn't had, um, you know, it's, it's it's always been a very attractive investment proposition, and, and you know, people that have bought rental properties over the years have done very very well. Rental, commercial, you know, whatever they've done very well. Out of them because of the because property generally rises in line with inflation. So yeah, I mean, it's it's it's, it's part of a diversified portfolio, would be my view. Well,
1: how do you direct because I see a lot of people manage funds for the most part if it's well managed and you had the appropriate mixture of assets to achieve a certain time horizon. It's incredible for a lot of people. Do, do you, did you have moments in time, whether it was 2000, 2003 or the GFC or finance companies 2008, 2010, where you had to talk people off the cliff or com, uh, compete with higher returns somewhere else? The worst time
0: I can remember would have been <coughs> I'm sorry I can't remember the exact year but it would have been probably after the the GFC because markets markets went down very slowly and and people couldn't see the bottom and when the bottom came it came very quickly, and then the market recovered extremely quickly, and that was that's typical of what happens. That you know, markets fall, and then you get a, a sharp recovery. And we also saw that last year when we got the the COVID recovery, and <laughs> it markets just went nuts for twelve months basically. And we've had two negative returns in August and September, and, and October probably going to be negative as well. So. Um, so that would be three negative returns for, for the, um, you know, this year. But overall, people are, are highly positive because you've had some pretty good, even I think you had a couple of months of double digits in the year. But um, the, the difference I found at that time, and there's been a couple other times, uh, um, the Asian financial crisis was another one um, which impacted markets in this part of the world. And the markets fell very slowly, and I and I sort of the analogy I use is is it's like cutting your finger off and and doing it. You know that was like cutting your finger with a piece of paper, and and we all know how painful a paper cut can be. But if you just got the knife out and went like that, it would have been a shock. But then. It would have, yeah, and that's what that felt like at the time because you came to work every day and you, you just, it was just more ne- more bad news and that went on for 18 months <laughs> and people were just, you know, couldn't see the bottom whereas when you've had these sharp declines, you get to the bottom a lot quicker and then the conversations are then about, you know, the recovery and you can use the data to show, you know, that recoveries do happen and they always happen. So.
1: Has there been lessons around that as you've you know done advice for a longer period of time? Like mistakes you did at the start, whether it was not setting good enough expectations or getting better at explaining the downsides or uh, getting better at acquiring uh, business. W- what has been your lessons over the years?
0: I think the biggest thing is just don't overpromise on returns. It's mm. um, you know you just make sure that people are aware that it's a long-term thing and make sure that they're aware that things can go down. And, you know, it's, yeah, that's probably the, the two key things for me. It's, <laughs> there's nothing, you know, it's markets will happen and as an advisor you can't control those. Um, all you can control is, is help guide the person to make the best decisions they can make at that point in
1: time. Do you think, I've been thinking um, more about what actually advice is and I, I see it as finance is just an excuse to be a life coach, which sounds a bit, people don't like calling themselves life coaches, but I see, you know, you talk about money maybe a little bit because a lot of your clients, at least I find are ones that aren't interested in finance. They just want to know it's fine. And then you talk about the weather or whatever. The fuck. <laughs> <laughs> but then the, there's moments in their life where they're like, who do they call? Who do they trust? And, what, and who's, who's going to give them the advice to get out of it? Like, you know, I use the example of a client's partner had dementia we knew it was going to happen. She was looking after him, but then suddenly she had to put him in the care. And we're like, she's like, what do we do? And I'm like, well, you know, it's going to cost about this much a week. We already planned it in your plan because you gotta, you got to think like that. you got to think like what's going to happen and how can we considerably protect it? So where do, what do you think the value of advice is? in your
0: opinion? I think it was just about helping people make the right decision at the time. I mean, mm. you know, I, a conversation I'm having with, with people now, and I suppose it's about age and stage in life, right? You know, you're starting to have people involved in your life that don't make retirement for whatever reason, and you're also talking to clients and, you know, you go through stages where you're off to engagement parties and you go to weddings and then you go to 40th and then you start going to funerals and, and you know and all that sort of thing and it it does give you a bit of a reality check and it makes you realize that you actually need to sometimes live life in the present and if you um if you you know you you've got to enjoy things when you can and and you know during covid you you saw people who had retirement plans greatly disrupted who then suffered you know whatever reason their health deteriorated and and found they couldn't do the travel that maybe they wanted to do and they couldn't pursue those dreams they had and then you think well actually you know if you'd done those earlier hindsight's the best thing that can ever happen right and you don't often make decisions badly in hindsight um or with hindsight but you also I, i'm 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 a big advocate of encouraging people to actually you know use their money while they can with the understanding that you know it's about knowing that they're not they they're, they're going to have to make adjustments as they go through their journey and that's part of what you know you help them do. So yeah, you know you might you might have the capital to retire on forty or fifty thousand a year, but you know if you want to between the ages of sixty five and seventy five make that move that up to seventy or eighty thousand. As long as you know that when you get 75, you're not going to be able to do the the, the trip to Europe and the pointy end of the plane, um, you know, but when you've got your health and you've got your your motivation, and your energy and, and all the rest like that, you know, get on that plane, go and travel, go and pursue your dreams, go and do your goals. I mean, I was talking to a, a guy I work with in Australia yesterday who was telling me about a really good friend of his who had all these great plans and he went he he, he went to the doctor and he, he came out with a diagnosis of motor neurone disease and has probably got a lifespan of three to four years now. And suddenly all that stuff that he he's worked all his life to do has come to a has come to an end. And that's the sort of stuff that you can't control. But, you know, I'm I am a big advocate for people and say, Well, you know, if you want to go and do something, go and do it. Mm. It's not it's not something that, you know, the old the old adage, you know, you hear, and it's something I, I remember I got told by oh, someone very early on um, when I when I when I very first started out as an advisor at the start of the nineties. You know, the best form of financial planning is when you check to the undertaker bounces. So, like that, yeah. yeah, and and that's you know, I just I just encourage people to go and do pursue pursue your dreams and aspirations is, is what I try and do and. I, I view my job as helping people achieve those goals, dreams, and aspirations.
1: Mm. It's interesting, eh? That We sort of turn into spending advisors, which kind of goes against the way that you're enumerated if you think about it too. It's like we tell them, hey, enjoy your money now because we know the consequences of seeing people not enjoying those moments and saying, hey, ha- spend a lot more now because you mm. won't be able to spend it after this age because you can't enjoy it. How how do How do you... Instill that let's say in a new person where it's like, hey, you're remunerated from the amount of money that person has. Also, you need to tell them to spend it to enjoy their life. How do you how do you hold those two spaces in your head? I
0: don't I never think about the remuneration. It's it's about the the first and foremost thing is what's right for the client. And if you if you can't align that, you know, with an absolute laser vision, then you shouldn't be in the industry, is my view. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Fair. I just think that's you know your client's always got to come first, and if it means that you know you're not going to get paid as much or you know, so be it. That's just the way cookie crumbles because your job is to give a client the right advice for them at that point in time.
1: Probably you end up getting paid more as a result because mm-hmm. you care more about people. I never think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, how do you help people discover their goals?
0: Just a conversation. Yeah. I normally go into my first meeting. I don't even take a piece of paper with me when I meet people for the first time. It's just let well, just sit and talk about what you want to do.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Have and just learned, understand it. Have you learned any lessons around like how to help people feel comfortable? I know you do a lot of intuitive understanding, or was there things you had to overcome, like limiting beliefs around money or
0: things? No, I mean i I was lucky. My my parents you know, always instilled the thing about money and being careful with money in me. I mean, you know, I, it's probably a generational thing because my parents, you know, lived through the war. Um, my father was, you know, he he was, when the war ended, he would have been 10 years old. So, you know, and, that, and my mother would have been, oh, she would have been six or seven. So that, that austerity period that happened, really did instill people the importance of, you know, just being careful. And that got instilled in, in me and my sisters at a very early age. And, you know, then you sort of see what your parents do in time and how they live and you realise that, you know, money, there can be times in your life where money is very difficult. And I certainly saw that in my, you know, in in my life. And, um I think it's just about making sure that you 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 understand that but also take that on your journey with you that, you know, yes, money money is hard earned. But I also have a a belief that if someone comes to me with a million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, they're deserving of the same 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 type of advice because the person that's got that hundred thousand that amount of money is just as important to them as the money the person who's got a million dollars is, because that's what they've got to live and they've got to to live their their retirement on. So, you know, it doesn't. Yeah, I mean, I I started investing in shares when I was when I got my first paper run in Palmerston North, and I oh, yeah. I used to I used to go. Um, gosh, it was a funny old thing, you know. You'd, go to the newspaper office, I used to bloody ride around Palmer's North delivering newspapers for the Dominion Post or the Post, the Evening Post it was at the time and then the Evening Standard and then you get paid and you get this little brown envelope with, with some cash and then I used to go down to the, the building society and put my money in a hole in the wall and I, mean, I was, I would have been 13, 14 then when I was at, when I was at Palmer's North Boy's High and I used to, you know, go stop off at the sharebroker's office on my way because I sort of got to know them through my grandfather. And I'd go and chat and, I'd, you know, I'd buy some shares in BHP and that's that's how I started. And, um, did it go well
1: or did you lose it all? No,
0: no I'm just, I've still got them. you still got them? Yeah, 40 years later, still got them. <laughs> so it's, not, it's 40 years, 30 years, um, 35, something like not I, I don't know. Jeez, wow! I still got those. Did you? Yeah,
1: yeah. I was in
0: uh, Vernon. Yeah, I can't remember what. what I think I was. <laughs> did in you Go- do the marching there? Yeah, I think I was in Gordon. I think Gordon, it was Gordon, yeah, yeah, yeah. The light blue. blue. Yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a great school. I, I um, yeah, well, I, 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 I still think it was probably the best school I went to, and there was some great teachers there that I had. Um, I mean, the three that stand out to me was um, Eric White. Was it Eric White? I'm um, the director. Um, Errol Brookie and Ian Cahoon. I, they, Ian they, Cahoon, they, a- were the, they were the three um, people that, that were sort of running the school and Errol White was, um, I mean, he was a phenomenal man. He, unfortunately, I think he played Davis Cup for New Zealand in tennis and he, he. I just, I've always admired what he did and the way he dealt with people. <laughs> And he, I mean, he's very, the three of them were very old school and, you know, probably some of their (laughs) methods wouldn't stand up in today's world. But um, uh, the thing they instilled in you was respect. Hmm. And, I mean, it's interesting you remember Ian Cahoon as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I, I mean, I I remember being, going back to Palmy, it would have been 10, 15 years ago now. And I was walking in, um, I was in Countdown, or uh, Food Town, I think it was at the time, in the plaza. And I walked in down the aisle and I was just wearing um I was just I'd just gone in I, I was staying at my um my parents-in-law's place and I'd just gone in and I had I I hadn't actually made any effort to go because you know that's just the way it was I had my shorts and t-shirt on and I had my I just thrown on a pair of jandals and I had my socks down around my ankles and I heard this booming voice um through the aisle Proctor pull your socks up and I turned around and it was Errol Brookie. <laughs> and after all those years, he remembered me. Wow. Uh, and I thought that was just very, very cool. And I had a chat to him and told him what I was doing. And, and he was, you know, I mean, I don't know, but, I mean, he did clearly remember me, but he, he, he shows a real empathy and a real interest in what I'd done in my life. And, hmm.
1: yeah, it was it
0: was a cool moment.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. It's crazy how... Much an impact of someone believing in you more than you can believe in yourself can have, mm. or someone taking the time to care. Had there been other mentors in your life, or uh, things, yeah, definitely lessons you've learned. What would be things you've learned? And
0: I look those? at I look at some of the bosses I've had in my life, and I've had some, I've had, good some, and bad. I've had yeah, good <laughs> and bad. But I've had I've had a couple that I, I think you know I, I think about, and I don't know if I should name them or not, but. There was one guy I had who who just absolutely showed unwavering belief in me. Mm. And he encouraged me to be the best I could be. And he backed you in every decision you made. And even if you got it wrong in public, he would always say, but then you'd get that tap on your shoulder say, Oh, have you got a minute? And you get taken into a room and have a discussion. But it was always done in a very respectful way. Mm-hmm. And you know he was he's an incredible guy, and I still keep in touch with him now you know after all these years and the first probably the first partner I had and when I started out in accounting was has been a huge influence in my life. I still keep in touch with them now you know thirty odd years later um yeah. so they're probably the two two key people, and you know obviously the other um you know my mom as well she's she suffered you know some uh, i don't know whether, i mean hardship's probably the right word for it. And just seeing the way she got through that, and uh, the resilience that she had at the time, um, yeah. yeah. So
1: you've alluded to a, a few things, huh? Mm. <laughs> but, but maybe we won't barely. Maybe won't oh, I mean, I'm too.
0: happy to talk about stuff. I was mean, maybe some stuff I won't talk. I'm, I'm pretty much an open book anyway. So
1: right, as you cross your arms, as soon no, as no. you talked about it,
0: no, it's all good. No, I'm happy to talk about it. But no, it's just there, there've been there've been a number of people in my life that that have been you know really. Influential, and of course, the other one is my wife, and I've been married to her for twenty odd years. God, always should kill me if I couldn't remember. But
1: yeah, yeah, and got she, it?
0: she's been a huge, huge influence as well. So wow. um, you could the send it to her. Well, she's, um you know, she's she's got a complete opposite personality to me, and mm-hmm. we we joke about it that you know at work I'm she's incredibly tidy. You go to her desk and there's nothing on it, and my desk is just covered in paper and <laughs> it's terrible. But then at home with it. Absolute diametric opposites. That I'm quite tidy at home, and she's just got stuff everywhere. So
1: yeah. <laughs> random. What, what yeah. do you th- on the marriage front? Because you know that having a marriage for that long, long of a time, and and still you know speaking highly. It was funny. Uh, uh, there was a study where they were uh, um, recording couples, and they could determine with ninety four percent accuracy whether uh, a couple would end. Right, and it was based on. If they pointed out something, the other one would be supportive of it in the sense of, look, a bird. Oh, where's the bird? Or, and then they turned into each other as well, like they would mm. be interested. Yeah. What, what do you think has been quite helpful, your lessons through the 20 years of marriage?
0: Just say yes.
1: Just say yes, yes, dear. Sorry, dear.
0: <laughs> nah, um I think it's just, you know, be encouraging and, and, do what you can do, but find things that you enjoy together. I mean, we, we, we love travel. Um, we don't have kids, so, you know, we um, it's, it's enabled us to travel. Um, you know, so we, we do that. We do try and go overseas at least once a year, and I think that's very healthy and gives you a, a, a good perspective. Um, you know, we've seen some really cool places and done some cool things. Um, but, yeah, it's just about, you know, finding those those things that you can do together and enjoy them.
1: Do you have like rituals of um, you have a date night or do you have or even just like communicating boundaries or no, just flow, just, just travel just... once a year. I'll see you next year. Honey.
0: No, no. I think I've got to be careful because <laughs> <Yeah>, Gre- <yeah. laughs>
1: Gre- Greta
0: will listen back to that, the said thing, oh, God. you know. But no, I just think it's you know just do what you can do and be encouraging and try and do stuff together. I mean, but we've been so busy with the business over the last two or three years, we probably haven't had that time.
1: Mm. Um,
0: but we still found the time to go and travel and I think it's useful to to do it because it enables you to disconnect a little bit. And yeah, you know, I had um we've done a couple of trips subsequent to COVID and yeah, you know, one of them actually works out quite beneficial because I actually got COVID right at the end of the trip. I didn't even realise I had it and went to do my test to come home. It was the last day you had to do the test to get back to New Zealand and I tested positive and I actually ended up getting stuck in the UK for five weeks. Because um, I couldn't get flight time, um, and it meant that we actually had to very quickly pivot, and I ran, I had to run the business from over there, um, and which actually worked really well. Um, but it meant that I actually got that period of time to disconnect because I hadn't planned for it. So <laughs> <laughs> Interesting, yeah. and that was good. And I think it's, and then we we repeated that this year. We went we went up to up to Europe this year. We and then went back to some of my childhood places, and that was. Um, yeah, it was also really good because once again, it's just that opportunity to completely. And we we actually ended up in Northern Europe, and I I didn't realize or I hadn't even thought about it at the time that internet might be a problem, and I actually couldn't get on the internet for for ten days, so I wasn't actually able to read my emails, and I was just relying purely on my phone, and it actually meant that you you had to disconnect because you couldn't do anything, mm. and that was actually really good. Yeah, mm. essential.
1: Mm. Do, is there? Do you ever on that front like so? Most businesses I see have a job, um, you know, there's some level, especially at the one-man bands, like there's some level of needing to control or not to delegate. Do Because you, you've got nine staff mm-hmm. now, so you've obviously reached a certain threshold that not many advisors have. Accountants, yeah, but even then mm-hmm. it's quite rare. So what, what has been your journey in the leadership front or is it something that your wife does really well? Are you in business together, I assume?
0: Yeah, I mean, my wife runs the place, so... I view she's. I mean, I always tell people she's the boss. She's the boss, and I think it's clear. I think it's important that we have that that ability that you know she she does make the decisions, and yeah, it's um.
1: So what what would be? Are you like more visionary, and she's more operationally? No,
0: or? I'm a I'm a I'm a doer. She's a, she's an absolute grafter. Grafter. Okay. Um, she'll do anything. Um, but you know, it's about trying to play to your skills, and you know, I've. I've managed big teams and I've managed small teams and, you know, I mean, just, I don't, I mean, we have nine people involved in the business. Not all of them are directly employed by, you know, um, we've got, we use contractors as well as, 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 as employees. So, um, but I think it's, to me, it's just about, you know, the question I always come back to, and this comes back to your question about bosses is how, how would you want to be treated if you're in that same position? Mm. And that's my that's my sole measure of you know, if I was in that position myself, how would I want to be treated or how would I like to have been treated?
1: Yeah. Yeah, fair, simple. Hmm. All right, well, we've done a solid forty four minutes, man. Well, wow, I don't flow through
0: it. Only seems like five.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I think it'd be interesting on the, the financial side of things, um sort of emotional like behaviour. Lessons, you know, like I noticed that whether someone's earning half a million dollars a year or 60 or 40, often their spending habits are behavioural. Or tips around the idea of how to approach investing, like, you know, maybe a diversified portfolio that's tax efficient. Like, what, what are some advices that you've learned?
0: I think it's, it comes down to people's personal beliefs. I mean, I always take the time to try and find out if, you know, people... Uh, if if you're dealing with someone who believes in um, you I've know, clearly got an interest in stuff I, I just say you know, go and open an account online and just just put some money in every week and play with it you know just see see what you can do you know use that as your as your passion and, and your interest and you know some people yeah they like it, others don't. I mean I've got a, a guy I talked to and I mean he was a compulsive spender. And so I set him up on this um, on this on the platform, and I said to him, "Every time you go out and buy a coffee, go and buy some shares in Starbucks. And every time you want to buy a takeaway, go and buy some shares in McDonald's." And you know, and we linked his spending to to the the thing. And then you know, I caught up with him. Well, we never never actually worked together. I mean, it was just mm. something I said to him. Mm. And then I caught up with him. A couple of years ago, and I just said, "Oh, how's that little share portfolio going?" He said, "You wouldn't believe I've got over thirty thousand dollars in it now." (laughs) And it was just—it's just something I just thought, you know, gives it will show him just sort of the the amount that actually. And he's now probably he's not as as frivolous with spending as he perhaps used to be, and but he's actually got something on the other side of the ledger now that to to show for what what he did. And it's just about for me, it's about finding something that appeals to people's. Personality and interest. Mm. Yeah.
1: It makes sense that there's a book, Atomic Habits, where it's like you already have a habit that you do, link that's good and consistent, and and just link it to a habit that you want to improve. Hmm. So it's like you've associated his bad spending with investing in his future, Hmm. and he already takes that action, so it's a lot easier to direct the ship than stop and start. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Is, Is there anything... Is there anything else that you find is quite helpful for thinking about with your retirement? So you're in your retirement, you know, do you say pay off your debt first or do you, what's your?
0: Yeah, I mean I try and get people to get to the point when they retire they're debt free. I think that, I think that's really important. Um, you, The other thing I always say to people is in the year before retirement, plan to replace those big items that you want to replace. So if you want to do your car or the white wear in your house or do a renovation, get that done before you actually retire because psychologically those things are easier to do when you're earning than when you've stopped hmm. um, because if you stop then you've got a finite pool of money whereas if you're earning and something goes wrong you've, got the, you've still got the ability to say actually I'm going to carry on for another year hmm. if you need to um so i find that type of thing helps give people a bit more control but you know it comes back to what i said at the start it's it's you know at the end of the day it's the client's money and it's up to them to do what they want with it and it's up to me my view my my view is to try and guide them along the way and help them reach their end goal which you know might be retirement i mean in, in new zealand we're very lucky that we do have universal super and you know, for a couple, it can provide a meaningful amount towards your retirement and, you know, there are a number of people who live on their super and they that's all they live on. Um, but, you know, fortunately we're going to start to get to the point where people who've, who've invested in KiwiSaver are going to have meaningful amounts of money which they're going to be able to use to supplement their retirement. So, you know, um, retirement in New Zealand is going to become, I think, you know for people that have had the help and the guidance it's going to become a lot easier
1: yeah hmm. a huge yeah the conscriptive saving
0: but you know that's going to come down to you know super and the mm. funding for that and you know I think um <coughs> Michael Cullen setting up that fund he did was was you know I think we're going to look back in history and that's going to be one of the key moments I think in New Zealand in you know in the in the ability to help secure people's financial futures
1: yeah, every client under forty, I'm just like, let's just plan that there's no super. I don't know if there will be, but right. it just—I don't know how you're going to pay for it with all the. It's options.
0: interesting. You, you—I mean—that's exactly the view I take. I, I've got three bands. <coughs> I say to people, if you're fifty and over, you can probably be reasonably confident you'll have it. Mm. If you're fifty to forty, you probably will be around, but in some. Probably a means or income-tested yeah. form, and then forty and under, you probably should be planning on just being do do your best. There'll be something as a backstop, but that will probably be because the demographics are going to change to the point where you know. I think I thought. I mean, you know, there's better people than me that are equipped to to tell you the demographics, but you know, you're going to end up with a lot more people retired than there are today that are being funded by fewer people working. So,
1: yeah, living longer.
0: <laughs> exactly. Hmm. And and we're living longer. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's going to be interesting. I'll let you know. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Well, you've done your first podcast, mate. Thank so you. Thanks That's for coming for you. on. That's right.